Chapter 27 of The Deluge, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jeff Evans, Minneapolis, Minnesota. The Deluge, Volume 2 by Henrik Sienkiewicz. Translated by Jeremiah Curtin, 1835 to 1906. Chapter 27. At a time when all living men in the commonwealth were mounting their horses, Carl Gustav stayed continually in Prussia, busied in capturing the towns of that province and in negotiating with the elector. After an easy and unexpected conquest, the quick soldier soon saw that the Swedish lion had swallowed more than his stomach could carry. After the return of Jan Kazimir, he lost hope of retaining the commonwealth. But while making a mental abdication of the whole, he wished at least to retain the greater part of his conquest, and above all, royal Prussia, a province fruitful, dotted with large towns, wealthy, and adjoining his own Pomerania. But as that province was first to defend itself, so did it continue faithfully to its lord and the commonwealth. The return of Jan Kazimir and the war begun by the confederation of Tischhovtsi might revive the courage of Prussia, confirm it in loyalty, give it will for endurance. Therefore Karl Gustav determined to crush the uprising and to wipe out Kazimir's forces so as to take from Prussians the hope of resistance. He had to do this for the sake of the elector, who was ever ready to side with the stronger. The king of Sweden knew him thoroughly, and doubted not for a moment that if the fortune of Jan Kazimir should preponderate, the elector would be on his side again. When, therefore, the siege of Marienburg advanced slowly, for the more it was attacked, the more stubbornly did Pan Vieher defend it. Karl Gustav marched to the Commonwealth, so as to reach Jan Kazimir again, even in the remotest corner of the land. And since with him deed followed decision, as swiftly as thunder follows lightning, he raised his army disposed in towns, and before any one in the commonwealth had looked around, before the news of his march had spread, he had passed Warsaw, and had rushed into the greatest blaze of conflagration. Driven by anger, revenge, and bitterness, he moved on like a storm. Behind him ten thousand horses trampled the fields, which were still covered with snow, and taking the infantry from the garrisons, he went on, like a whirlwind, toward the far south of the commonwealth. On the road he burned and pursued. He was not now that recent Karl Gustav, the kindly, affable, and joyous lord, clapping his hands at Polish cavalry and winking at feasts and praising the soldiers. Now, wherever he showed himself, the blood of peasants and nobles flowed in a torrent. On the road he annihilated parties, hanged prisoners, spared no man. But as when, in the thick of the pine woods, a mighty bear rushes forward with heavy body crushing branches and brush on the way, while wolves follow after, and not daring to block his path, pursue, press nearer and nearer behind, so did those parties, pursuing the armies of Karl, join in throngs denser and denser, and follow the Swedes, as a shadow a man, and still more enduringly than a shadow, for they followed in the day and the night, in fair and foul weather. Before him two bridges were ruined, provisions destroyed, so that he had to march as in a desert, without a place for his head or anything with which to give strength to his body when hungry. Karl Gustav noted quickly how terrible his task was. The war spread around him as widely as the sea spreads around a ship lost in the waters. Prussia was on fire. On fire was Great Poland, 
which had first accepted his sovereignty and first wished to throw off the Swedish yoke, little Poland was on fire, and so were Russia, Lithuania, and Umud. In the castles and large towns the Swedes maintained themselves yet as if on islands, but the villages, the forests, the fields, the rivers were already in Polish hands. Not merely a single man or small detachments, but a whole regiment might not leave the main Swedish army for two hours, for if it did the regiment vanished without tidings, and prisoners who fell into the hands of peasants died in terrible tortures. In vain had Karl Gustav given orders to proclaim in villages and towns that whoso of peasants should bring an armed noble, living or dead, would receive freedom forever, and lands as a reward. For peasants, as well as nobles and townsmen, marched off to the woods. Men from the mountains, men from deep forests, men from meadows and fields, hid in the woods, formed ambushes on the roads against the Swedes, fell upon the smaller garrisons, and cut scouting parties to pieces. Flails, forks, and scythes, no less than the sabers of nobles, were streaming with Swedish blood. All the more did wrath rise in the heart of Karl, that a few months before he had gathered in that country so easily, hence he could hardly understand what had happened, whence these forces, whence that resistance, whence that awful war for life or death, the end of which he saw not and could not divine. Frequent councils were held in the Swedish camp. With the king marched his brother Adolf, prince of Bipont, who had command over the army. Robert Douglas, Henry Horn, relative of that Horn who had been slain by the scythe of a peasant at Chenstehova, Valdemar, Prince of Denmark, and that Miller who had left his military glory at the foot of Jasnagura, Aschenberg, the ablest cavalry leader among the Swedes, Hammerskoil, who commanded the artillery, and the old robber marshal Arwid Wittenberg, famed for rapacity, living on the last of his health, for he was eaten by the Gallic disease, Forgill, and many others, all leaders skilled in the capture of cities, and in the field yielding ingenious to the king only. These men were terrified in their hearts, lest the whole army with the king should perish through toil, lack of food, and the fury of the Poles. Old Wittenberg advised the king directly against the campaign. How will you go, O king, said he, to the Russian regions after an enemy who destroys everything on the way, but is unseen himself? What will you do if horses lack not only hay, but even straw from the roofs of cottages, and men fall from exhaustion? Where are the armies to come to our aid? Where are the castles in which to draw breath and rest our weary limbs? My fame is not equal to yours, but were I Karl Gustav, I would not expose that glory acquired by so many victories to the fickle fortune of war. To which Karl Gustav answered, And neither would I, were I Wittenberg. Then he mentioned Alexander of Macedon, with whom he liked to be compared, and marched forward, pursuing Charnyetsky, not having forces so great nor so well trained, retreated before him, but retreated like a wolf ever ready to turn on his enemy. Sometimes he went in advance of the Swedes, sometimes at their flanks. Sometimes in deep forest he let them go in advance. While they thought themselves to be pursuers, he, in fact, was the hunter. He cut off the unwary. Here and there he hunted down a whole party, destroyed foot regiments marching slowly, attacked provision trains. The Swedes never knew where he was. More than once in the darkness of night they began to fire from muskets and cannons into thickets, thinking that they had an enemy before them. They were mortally wearied. They marched in cold and hunger in affliction, and that vir molestissimus, most harmful man, hung about them continually, as a hail-cloud hangs over a grain-field. At last they attacked him at Golam. 
not far from the junctions of the Vyper and the Vistula, some Polish squadrons being ready for the battle charge, the enemy spreading disorder and dismay. In front sprang Volodyovsky with his Lauda squadron and bore down Valdemar, Prince of Denmark. But the two Kavetskys, Samuel and Jan, urged from the hill this armored squadron against English mercenaries under Wilkinson and devoured them in a moment as a pike gulps of whiting. And Pan Malavsky engaged so closely with the Prince of Bypoint that men and horses were confounded like dust which two whirlwinds sweeping from opposite quarters bring together and turn into one circling column. In the twinkle of an eye the Swedes were pushed to the Vistula, seeing which Douglas hastened to the rescue with chosen horsemen. But even these reinforcements could not check the onset. The Swedes began to spring from the high bank to the ice, falling dead so thickly that they lay black on the snowfield, like letters on white paper. Valdemar, Prince of Denmark, fell, Wilkinson fell, and the Prince of Bypont, thrown from his horse, broke his leg. But of Poles both Kavetskys fell, killed also were Malavsky, Rudyavsky, Rogovsky, Timinsky, Hoinsky and Porvanitsky, Volodovsky, alone, though he dived among the Swedish ranks like a seamew in water, came out with having suffered the slightest wound. Now Karl Gustav himself came up with his main force and with artillery. Straightway the form of the battle changed. Charnyetsky's other regiments, undisciplined and untrained, could not take positions in season. Some had not their horses in readiness. Others had been in distant villages and in spite of orders to be always ready, were taking their leisure in cottages. When the enemy pressed suddenly on these men, they scattered quickly and began to retreat to the Vyper. Therefore Charnyetsky gave orders to sound the retreat so as to spare those regiments that had opened the battle. Some of the fleeing went beyond the Vistula, others to Koinskovoli, leaving the field and the glory of the victory to Karl for especially those who had crossed the Vyper were long pursued by the squadrons of Zbrojek and Kalinsky, who remained yet with the Swedes. There was delight beyond measure in the Swedish camp. No great trophies fell to the king, it is true, sacks of oats and a few empty wagons, but it was not at that time a question of plunder for Karl. He comforted himself with this, that victory followed his steps as before, that barely had he shown himself when he inflicted defeat on the very Charnyetsky, on whom the highest hopes of Jan Kazimir and the Commonwealth were founded. He could trust that the news would run through the whole country, that every mouth would repeat, Charnyetsky is crushed, that the timid would exaggerate the proportions of the defeat, and thus weaken hearts and take courage from those who had grasped their weapons at the call of the Confederation of Tushovtsi. So when they brought in and placed at his feet those bags of oats, and with them the bodies of Wilkinson and Prince Valdemar, he turned to his fretful generals and said, Unwrinkle your foreheads, gentlemen, for this is the greatest victory which I have had for a year, and may end the whole war. Your Royal Grace, answered Wittenberg, who, weaker than usual, saw things in a gloomier light, let us thank God even for this, that we shall have a farther march in peace, though Charnyetsky's troops scatter quickly and rally easily. Marshal, answered the king, I do not think you a worse leader than Charnyetsky, but if I had beaten you in this fashion, I think you would not be able to assemble your troops in two months. Wittenberg only bowed in silence, and Karl spoke on. Yes, we shall have a quiet march, for Charnyetsky alone would really hamper it. If Charnyetsky's troops are not before us, there is no hindrance. 
The generals rejoiced at these words. Intoxicated with victory, the troops marched past the king with shouts and with songs. Charnyetsky ceased to threaten them like a cloud. Charnyetsky's troops were scattered. He had ceased to exist. In view of this thought, their past sufferings were forgotten, and their future toils were sweet. The king's words, heard by many officers, were borne through the camp, and all believed that the victory had uncommon significance, that the dragon of war was slain once more, and that only days of revenge and dominion would come. The king gave the army some hours of repose. Meanwhile, from Kozienitsky came trains with provisions. The troops were disposed in Golam, in Kroveniki, and in Yerzhinye. The cavalry burned some deserted houses, hanged a few peasants seized with arms in their hands, and a few camp servants mistaken for peasants. Then there was a feast in the Swedish camp, after which the soldiers slept a sound sleep, since for a long time it was their first quiet one. Next day they woke in briskness, and the first words which came to the mouths of all were, There is no Charnyetsky. One repeated this to another, as if to give mutual assurance of the good news. The march began joyously. The day was dry, cold, clear. The hair of the horses and their nostrils were covered with frost. The cold wind froze soft places on the Lubelts high road and made marching easy. The troops stretched out in a line almost five miles long, which they had never done previously. Two dragoon regiments, under the command of Dubois, a Frenchman, went through Markushev and Grabov, five miles from the main force. They had marched thus three days before they would have gone to sure death, but now fear and glory of victory went before them. Chanyetsky is gone, repeated the officers and soldiers to one another. In fact, the march was made in quiet. From the forest depths came no shouts. From thickets fell no darts hurled by invisible hands. Toward evening, Karl Gustav arrived at Grabov, joyous and in good humor. He was just preparing for sleep when Aschenberg announced through the officer of the day that he wished greatly to see the king. After a while, he entered the royal quarters, not alone, but with a captain of dragoons. The king, who had a quick eye and a memory so enormous that he remembered nearly every soldier's name, recognized the captain at once. "'What is the news, Fried?' asked he. "'Has Dubois returned?' "'Dubois is killed.' The king was confused. Only now did he notice that the captain looked as if he had been taken from the grave, and his clothes were torn. But the dragoons, inquired he, those two regiments? All cut to pieces. I alone was let off alive. The dark face of the king became still darker. With his hands he placed his locks behind his ears. Who did this? Charnyetsky. Karl Gustav was silent and looked with amazement at Aschenberg, but he only nodded as if wishing to repeat. Charnyetsky, Charnyetsky, Charnyetsky. All this is incredible, said the king, after a while. Have you seen him with your own eyes? As I see your royal grace. He commanded me to bow to you and to declare that now he will recross the Vistula, but will soon be on our track again. I know not whether he told the truth. Well, said the king, had he many men with him? I could not estimate exactly, but I saw about four thousand, and beyond the forest cavalry of some kind. We were surrounded near Kreishin, to which Colonel Dubois went purposely from the high road, for he was told that there were some men there. Now I think that Charnyetsky sent an informant to lead us into ambush, since no one save me came out alive. The peasants killed the wounded. I escaped by a miracle. That man must have made a compact with hell, said the king, putting his hand to his forehead. For to rally troops after such a defeat and be on our neck again is not human power. 
It has happened as Marshal Wittenberg foresaw, put in Aschenberg. You all know how to foresee, burst out the king, but how to advise you do not know. Aschenberg grew pale and was silent. Carl Gustav, when joyous, seemed goodness itself, but when once he frowned, he roused indescribable fear in those nearest him, and birds do not hide so before an eagle as the oldest and most meritorious generals hid before him. But this time he moderated quickly and asked Captain Freed again, Has Charnyetsky good troops? I saw some unrivaled squadrons, such cavalry as the Poles have. They are the same that attacked with such fury in Golam. They must be old regiments. But Charnyetsky himself, was he cheerful, confident? He was as confident as if he had beaten us at Golam. Now his heart must rise the more, for they have forgotten Golembo and boast of Kraishin. Your Royal Grace, what Charnyetsky told me to repeat, I have repeated. But when I was on the point of departing, someone of the high officers approached me, an old man, and told me that he was the person who had stretched out Gustavus Adolphus in a hand-to-hand -hand conflict, and he poured much abuse on your Royal Grace. Others supported him, so do they boast. I left amid insults and abuse. Never mind, said Karl Gustav. Chanyetsky is not broken, and has rallied his army, that is the main point. All the more speedily must we march so as to reach the Polish Darius at the earliest. You are free to go, gentlemen. Announce to the army that those regiments perished at the hands of peasants in unfrozen morasses. We advance. The officers went out. Karl Gustav remained alone. For something like an hour he was in gloomy thought. Was the victory at Golam to bring no fruit, no change to the position, but to rouse still greater rage in the entire country? Karl, in presence of the army and of his generals, always showed confidence and faith in himself. But when he was alone, he began to think of that war, how easy it had been at first, and then increased always in difficulty. More than once doubt embraced him. All the events seemed to him in some fashion marvelous. Often he could see no outcome, could not divine the end. At times it seemed to him that he was like a man who, going from the shore of the sea into the water, feels at every step that he is going deeper and deeper and soon will lose the ground under his feet. But he believed in his star, and now he went to the window to look at the chosen star, that one which in the wane or great bear occupies the highest place and shines brightest. The sky was clear, and therefore at that moment the star shone brightly, twinkled blue and red, but from afar, lower down on the dark blue of the sky, a lone cloud was blackening, serpent-shaped, from which extended as it were arms, as it were branches, as it were the feelers of a monster of the sea, and it seemed to approach the king's star continually. End of chapter 27